we have sung our, our praise and we have uh, encouraged and, and spoken, sung to one another these words of, of faith and of our confidence in, in our God. Uh, let's now bring our, our requests and our petitions to that uh, great and faithful God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, this morning for just the amazing reality that we have been singing about, that you are, you are our mighty fortress. You are our refuge, our stronghold, our help in the midst of danger. And we thank you for Jesus, for the Savior, the conquering hero who fights our battles, the one who is our champion and our deliverer. We pray that you would help us um, to look to him today, to look to him to, to keep us from fear and from despair, and to help us uh, to know that if we have Christ, then we have everything in him. And so we can, we can say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And we're just so grateful uh, through Jesus Christ, through his grace, through the gospel, that we are a part of your kingdom. And we're so thankful to be a part of this local church, South Canyon Baptist Church, uh, and to, uh, to seek to display and to represent your kingdom here in Rapid City, in the Black Hills. And we just thank you for uh, the, church, uh, the church body, the community that we have and we know that you, uh, we're instructed in, in your word to, to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so um, this morning, we're just so thankful and we rejoice with Curtis and Sherry Colvin and for uh, their uh, marriage that took place this last week. Uh, we're just thankful uh, for that and thankful for them. And we just pray you would bless them uh, greatly in the coming uh, weeks and months uh, and just uh, Again, thankful that they uh, have, have been here at this uh, church uh, community, and we just pray that we would continue to love and support and encourage them, um, and that they would be an encouragement uh, to this body. We thank you also for Alex and Virginia Lewis, and for uh, the precious new life that they've added uh, to their family, for, for Palmer Grace, and we just pray uh, that you would be uh, with their family as they adjust to this, uh, this new life. Um, thank you so much uh, for that, just for the blessing uh, of a child. And we just pray that uh, Virginia would recover quickly and that you would just uh, help her and Alex uh, to, to love and to raise this little girl um, to, to be someone who knows you and puts her trust in you at an early age. And we thank you so much. Uh, God, we pray not only for this church, we pray for other churches here uh, in, our, uh, in our midst, in our region, that share in the gospel work. And so uh, this morning we pray for Redeeming Grace Church and for Josh Brown, uh, the pastor there. And we thank you um, for our um, connection, uh, sending out and planting Redeeming Grace um, a couple years ago. And we just um, thank you for how you're blessing the ministry there and blessing Pastor Josh. Uh, and we thank you in particular that he was... Uh, so generous and, and able to free up um, Justin McGeary uh, so that he could be here and serve us and preach to us today. But we pray you would be with Josh Brown as he continues preaching 
through the book of Genesis, and just uh, what an incredible uh, place in your word, just so many foundations being laid of who you are and your plan for your people, and we just pray you would uh, give Josh great wisdom and boldness as he preaches. God, we know you're God, uh, not only of this church and not only here in Rapid City, uh, but you are God of the whole world, and so uh, this morning we want to pray for Ukraine, uh, for the the 43 million uh, people who live there, Um, and God, First, we thank you just for the gospel that took root uh, in that region uh, a thousand years ago. What an amazing, uh, incredible uh, spiritual heritage uh, that exists. And and we thank you for the church there in that nation that is uh, majority Christian. We just pray you would strengthen the church there, that you would heal um, divisions and wounds that that would still exist in the aftermath of, of communism and the Cold War. We just pray... And then in particular for the evangelical church there, that you would just uh, help it continue to grow, that there would be um, more and more capacity for for training up leaders and pastors and theological uh, training uh, there. Uh, But God, we also, uh, as we think of Ukraine, we pray for peace. We pray for an end to all of the the posturing and the fighting uh, that's taking place and the threats over this, this country that, that really bridges the East and the West. And we pray you protect the people of Ukraine uh, from war and from violence. Uh, we pray that the threat of, of war and, and invasion and violence, that it, would, that it would end, that it would be uh, taken away and it would be put, uh, put to rest for good, God. Uh, be uh, with Ukraine's leaders, give them uh, wisdom and also give uh, wisdom to to all of their allies who who stand with them and God we pray even in the midst of this this mess and this darkness we pray that the Christians in Ukraine would would step up even uh, even like Esther and Mordecai as we've been preaching through the book of Esther even in the midst of great threat and uh, and darkness that, that the Christians would step up and that they would find opportunities that they would find openings to, to bear witness and to shine as lights um, and, and share with others about the hope that's found in Jesus Christ alone. And God, now as we, as we turn to the preaching of your word, we just pray you would be with our brother Justin as he uh, shares with us, as he opens your word to us. We pray you would open our eyes, open our hearts to, to see just how much we need your grace and how faithful and generous you have been to provide your grace through uh, the champion that we need, uh, through your son. And we just pray for boldness for Justin, that you would give him conviction to proclaim your word uh, and be with him, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Well, I'm glad to be here with you this morning, and uh, I send you greetings from Redeeming Grace Church, which we meet down uh, at the journey in which, uh, for those of you who I see some familiar faces, it's good to see you, and some new faces. For those of uh, unfamiliar faces, a few years ago, this church actually launched Redeeming Grace Church, so it's nice to be back uh, with you this morning and looking at uh, God's Word. Uh, 
as Rachel said earlier, I also teach at John Witherspoon College. I teach in the Christian Studies Department. And if you have any interest in classes or degree programs, I'll be out in the lobby afterwards and I can field questions about the college, uh, but also any questions that you might have about our passage this morning, because we will not get through the whole thing. So please do come, feel free to come up and ask a question. As a teacher, I very much like and welcome questions. Uh, so that would be very enjoyable to talk with you afterwards. Um, but let us turn our attention now to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, if you're using the pew Bibles, I guess it's not pews, chair Bibles, I'm not sure what you call them, uh, the blue Bibles that you have, uh, it would be page 239 uh, in those Bibles. And we're going to just read, as you will see, it's a long chapter, we'll just read parts of it. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Then we'll jump to verses 8 through 11, and then we'll conclude the chapter by looking at verses 31 through 51. So please uh, give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now jump to verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants or slaves. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants or slaves and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now jumping to verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will make your flesh, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you recount your great deeds. And I pray that you would help us this morning, every person in this room, to lift up their eyes to see how great you are, O oh Lord. And particularly that for those here in this room whose eyes are not lifted to you, or not lifted as they should, I pray, O oh Lord, you would help them. You would help us to see you more truly, to see your grace and your power. 
And I pray you would be at work in ways that only you can through your word. And we ask this in Christ's powerful name. Amen. This may be one of, it certainly is one of the most famous Bible stories. So for even a person who has hardly any knowledge of the Bible, they know about David and Goliath, whether they actually know any of the details of the story. If you watch any sporting event, you might hear them talk about a David and Goliath matchup. Or movies, politics, that reference comes up all the time. This is like a David and Goliath situation. I actually ran into a uh, consulting uh, agency that actually is called David and Goliath. And I'd like to read to you a little bit about this company, not because this is an advertisement, but I think it captures the way people think about this story. And they say, we adhere to the belief that everyone has a Goliath, a challenge or obstacle that keeps you from realizing your true potential. Goliaths can take many forms. It can be a competitor, a sales goal, or a mountain you want to climb. At David and Goliath, we're an agency designed to take on Goliaths. The key is to be inspiring, to be relentless, to ignite the challenger spirit in all of us that's capable of overcoming any obstacle. And as our name suggests, we believe in taking on challenges and inspiring others to do the same. The bigger the challenges, the better. To accomplish this, we've nurtured a philosophy that must be, must be summed up in one word. Brave. And this is pretty much the standard way everyone approaches this story. That it is this moral story about us picking ourselves up by the bootstraps. Don't be afraid of the things that come at you. And take it on. And you will be victorious. Is that the way we should read this story? Is it about us overcoming our obstacles? Another interesting misconception that people have about the story is that it's primarily about David and Goliath. But this morning, I would actually like us to see that this story is about several characters, not just David and Goliath. There's three groups of people or three characters that are often left out. There's Israel, there's Saul, and there's God. And in fact, this is actually a sobering story about God's people and their choices. And it's a warning, actually, not a hurrah, you're awesome, go fight something big. So rather than this kind of moralistic approach, we're going to take a gospel-centered approach to this, and I would like to talk about three things. We'll talk about the threat. What's at stake here for the Israelites? And then we'll talk about what the real problem actually is, what the real point, the longest point that I'll be dealing with is the problem. And then we'll conclude by looking at the unexpected grace of God to rescue the Israelites out of this mess. And we will, because we didn't read the whole chapter, we will be bouncing around, so have your Bibles ready. We'll look at some verses that we didn't actually read. So, let's talk about the threat. What is at stake? 
If you actually know a little bit about the geography of ancient Israel and modern-day Israel, it actually goes from the Mediterranean Sea. Well, let's see here. Uh, it goes from the Mediterranean Sea, and it goes up into the mountains. The city of Jerusalem is up in the mountains of Judea, and the Philistines are a people group that essentially live on the coast right by the Mediterranean Sea, and the Israelites live up more or less in the mountains. And one of the things is in this chapter twice, in verse 2 and verse 19, we have this reference to the Valley of Elah. And there's several reasons why this, this uh, valley is mentioned. It is a military strategic point. Mountains are really hard to take an army through. And so you need to find natural spaces to lead a large group of people if you want to invade another territory. And in fact, the valley is essentially a superhighway right up into the mountains, into the people of Israel's main, the heartland of their territory. The second thing is, is that it also is a region of rather economic prosperity insofar as lots of resources. They have lots of trees and crops. It would have been a wonderful, lush place, perfect for an army to either feed itself in order to progress in its attack or to send food back to the conquering people's homeland. Another thing that is at stake here is that God's people are threatened with, if they lose, they will be subjugated. They will all become slaves. National slavery is at stake here. And then, interestingly enough, there's a fourth final personal touch. We're, we're told about David's family. We're told twice, actually, about his father, Jesse, in verse 12, it says that this man had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. And he says to David, actually, in verses 18 and 19, go see how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul, and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah. So, so dad, who's old, not able to fight, is wondering how his sons are doing, but actually, Bethlehem is right near the end of this superhighway, and so dad would be in danger if the Philistines win and plow through, okay? So, there's national things at stake, but there's also personal things at stake here, and Jesse, as you read the story, is completely unaware of the danger that he is in, and he's concerned for his sons, So a strategic military point threatening the economy and the families of the people of Israel. This is the perfect opportunity for a hero to show up. The perfect opportunity. And in fact, Goliath's challenge is just that. Chapter 17, verse 8, he says, Choose a man, and that is what this chapter is all about. It is about a choice. And this choice is actually where the real problem and threat lies. Because you would think it's Goliath. But actually, the danger that the Israelites face right now began before this situation, before Goliath shows up. And here is the real problem. That 
there is a comparison right in front of us in this chapter between Goliath and Saul. One of the reasons we know this is that, as we'll see, in the Bible, very few biblical characters actually get described in their appearance. If you read the whole Bible from cover to cover, very few people get described with any sort of more than just a passing, you know, he was a little bit like this. I don't know if you've ever wondered, I wonder, if was Peter like a big, tall, strong guy, or what was he like? You know, we just don't know what almost any biblical character looks like. But Saul and Goliath, actually, we know what these guys look like, and we'll see this in a moment. And it's because of that we know there's a comparison going on. But back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, this is actually right when the problem begins. So, a whole nine chapters before, the Israelites tell Samuel the prophet, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. So, one of the questions is, that's the job description. Why is Saul not doing it? Why is Saul not out there on the front of the battle lines? And of course, as you read the story, David and Goliath gets all the hype, but Saul's name is repeated constantly in our chapter. Goliath in verse 8 says, this is we're back in chapter 17, he says, am I not a Philistine or the Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? He knows about Saul and he pits himself against Saul. He knows that it should be him and Saul. And here's the issue. Saul is just like Goliath, only smaller. Only smaller, and that is the cause of the problem. One of the reasons why people initially liked Saul as a king, in chapter 9 of Samuel, verse 2, we're told that Saul was impressive, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. Why? He was a head taller than all the others. What a hero. He's a tall, strong guy. Unfortunately, Goliath is taller and stronger. Estimations of his armor alone would have been about 125 pounds. So this guy is able to fight people while carrying around 125 pounds of metal. The other thing that we get that's quite surprising as far as Bible stories go is that we get a full description of his armor in verses 4 through 7. He is actually described from head to foot, and very few people get that kind of description in the Bible. And he is all bronze. All bronze. His helmet, his armor. And we're also told, interestingly enough, that he's got on the tip of his spear iron, which may mean nothing to us, but remember, this is the beginning of the Iron Age. This is advanced technology. And in verse 38, guess what? We get a description of Saul's armor. We're told that he has a bronze helmet and he has a chain of mail, which is pretty impressive, just not as impressive as Goliath. 
So what you get with Goliath is this impressive physical specimen, invincibly armed, who gets up and taunts morning and evening, right as the sun is coming up, perhaps, and setting, and he glistens, right? So they get to see all of his fine technology and military uh, weaponry on display. He is everything that the Israelites had hoped for in a king. Israel is about to be swallowed by a bigger fish. And they are afraid along with Saul. Here's a real quick side question. When was the last time that the Israelites found themselves in a beautiful, on the edge of a beautiful lush area? Forty days they sit there. They've been 40 days waiting. But they're afraid because of giants. Well, if you read Numbers chapter 13, it was right before they entered the promised land. And they were afraid. Here's what they said. When we went into the land, this is the spies, the Israelite spies, to which you sent us. And it does. It flows with milk and honey. But the people who live there are powerful. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked to them to be the same. They have the exact same system of values as the people that they were spying on. And in that situation, they were just about to lose the promised land. And that is happening again on the exact same terms. The Israelites had the opportunity to go to the promised land or go back to Egypt Go back into slavery. And here they face slavery once again. And is this not like Christians today? Is this not like so many churches? Where so often we are enamored with how the world does things. How the world accomplishes things. We think, wow. They look so great. They're so strong. They're so powerful. They're so intelligent. They're so savvy. When churches saw decline in the end of the 20th century, what, what was the solution? Well, let's try the marketing strategies that work so well for businesses. Let's reorganize our churches to look more like businesses. Or even as individuals. We want all the world's stuff. We, we, we want to be important based on the world's values, whether it's the clothes we have, the money we have, brains, social status, whatever the case may be. And here's one thing, as a guest preacher, I want to say something about leadership. You guys are in the process of a leadership change. As a church, do not put burdens on your pastors and elders to look like the world's leaders. Let them be leaders who are governed by God's word and God's ways. But that's just an aside. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said that the modern world thinks great thoughts about man and what he can accomplish. We can accomplish world peace, right? If you go to any high school graduation ceremony, you'll get tons of this, right? We're so awesome. We're so great. But what happens to Israel is that they are stuck and betrayed because they have tried all the methods, talents, 
heroes fail of the world. We bank on the world's solutions when we face the world's problems, but we end up sinking. And this story is not one about realizing your full potential in the face of obstacles. Because in Goliath, the Israelites see everything that they wanted, and it's about to kill them. Goliath is a menacing, invincible threat. They thought Saul would fix their problems. But there's always a bigger fish. And in the New Testament, this is regularly a warning to God's people to not love the world and its methods, but to be rather transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12. Or in 1 John 2, do not love the world or anything in the world, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has, it doesn't come from the Father, but it comes from the world, and the world is passing away. There's actually one other place that's quite striking in the warning to the church, and that's in Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation 13, we are told of a great beast. Interestingly enough, this beast looks a lot like Goliath. Listen to this in verse 5 and 6. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, which is what Goliath did. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Verse 2, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Lions and bears. In fact, Goliath is described by David as an animal. And then verses 3 and 4, The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, listen to this, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it, right? There's nobody more powerful than this creature. And authority was given over to, every tr to it, to every tribe, people, and language, and nation, and all who dwell on earth worshipped it. And he made war on the saints, and the warning to the church is, it is a call to endurance and to faith, not to be enamored with the beast. And it is at this point in the story where we must be, see the grace of God. Israel got themselves into this mess. This is our third point. God's choice and God's grace. It's remarkable that Israel facing this incredible obstacle, no one stops and says, you know what? Let's pray. Let's call out to God. The Israelites and Saul doesn't, doesn't even occur to them. God, you know what? We blew it. Would you come help us out? It is the sheer grace of God that they're going to get out of this. And in fact, back in 1 Samuel, we're told that God explicitly says to Samuel, they've not rejected you when they asked for a king. They've rejected me. They picked their king. In verse 38 and 39, we're told about um, Saul's armor and that it doesn't fit David. And so David doesn't fight according to the world's ways. 
he goes for the sling and the shepherding gear, we're told in verse 40. One of the things that's very interesting is in verse 25, Saul essentially is going to whoever would fight in his place, he'll give them a tax exemption, which is essentially to say, right, they're not under him in one sense. This guy is so scared, he's willing to almost give away his position. He's marked by cowardice. What makes David such a great hero? Goliath is super well-known, right? He spends 40 days on an ad campaign for how big and impressive he is, scaring everybody. And he actually knows who Saul is, so Saul clearly has something of a reputation. But David, verses 55 and 58, which we didn't read, who is he? It doesn't seem that anybody knows who this guy is. But David is concerned with God's honor. And not only is he concerned about God's honor, but he actually knows God. He knows God's character. And he sees the situation from God's vantage point. And so he thinks about the situation entirely differently. Notice that he refers to God as the living God in verse 26. And who is this Philistine to defy the armies of the living God. Does Goliath actually know? This guy who worships like wood and stone, does he know that he's messing with the living God? David also refers to him as the Lord of hosts, that is, a God of armies. And he notes in verse 37 that God delivers and that Goliath is nothing more than a lion and a bear. And just as God delivered him from lions and bears before, same thing. Not a big deal. He knows that God is not limited and that God can bring about great reversals. And again, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this about those who know God, that they think great thoughts about God. And so they're able to have great boldness. And what's fascinating about this story, this is a long chapter almost 60 verses. How long is the battle, the actual battle? It's three verses. It's very short. The battle is like that. You would expect maybe an hour, two hour long struggle between two great champions. Three verses. And David, actually, in this passage, is compared with a lot of previous heroes like Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And if you want to spend some time later today, just think about how David is like those people. But in verse 52, notice, once David is victorious, that the retreat goes all the way back to Gath, Goliath's hometown, and to Ekron. He completely clears out the whole valley of Elah. Complete liberation and freedom. And so one of the things is when we think about the church, what makes the church actually unique as an institution? And what makes Christianity worthwhile? Well, let's just say it's not the Christians. Are we that amazing? 
Are we full of the smartest, most fashionable? Are we the movers and shakers of the world? Not if you read the Bible, it doesn't seem like that. Israel's freedom and identity and the church's freedom and identity is distinguished from all others by the Lord God. In verse 47, David says that he will be victorious over Goliath so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. That his God is the living God, and he's going to fight with just a sling and a stick, which is totally insulting to Goliath. And Paul in Corinthians says that we preach Christ crucified, foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling blocks to Jews. And David in every way foreshadows Christ. In John 12, this great king, this Jewish peasant, comes riding into the city on a donkey to die. Who could have foreseen that a Jewish peasant leading a band of fishermen from Galilee, the backwoods, Hicks, would form a religion that would outlast the Roman Empire? It's absurd. And in fact, will outlive all other empires. The United States of America the People's Republic of China. God's king looks nothing like the world's kings. God's king is here in this situation super young. He's a shepherd. He's small and he comes from nowhere. Bethlehem? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That podunk town? And so one of the questions for us as Christians, are we enamored with Christ? Does Christ seem big to you or does he seem small to you? When hard things come your way, those great obstacles, are you going and thinking, all right, this is my chance. I'm big, I'm powerful, I'm strong, I'm mighty, watch me tackle this. Or does Christ seem large to you and great, able to take on whatever is in front of you? So this story is about God's hero trusting in God's character and God's promises and in God's deliverance past the world's surface-level intimidation tactics. And because of that, he has great boldness and great faith. So this most famous story of Scripture, which we so often use to motivate young children to do something difficult, stand up to bullies and whatnot, is actually about the sinful choice of Israel, their love for the world and its methods that lands them in a pickle. One that seems to them insurmountable because they already believed it. They bought into the world's methods and it's only by the grace and power of God that they get out of it. And that God's champion had confidence in God, not self-confidence. 
He knew God, and he knew that this was the living God. He knew what was God was like and what God was capable of. And he trusted in the Lord of hosts to deliver him. And this is exactly our Lord Jesus. The great king, and in comparison with David, only better. And his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. Partially because he is full of mercy and full of grace. So rather than orient our lives around the things that glisten and dazzle us, let us lift our eyes to heaven. Let's see God as big and great, the creator of all things. If you're having a rough day, think about the one who made the galaxies, light years in expanse. And think about the God that traveled the distance from heaven to earth up to a cross to defeat the only thing that not even Goliath could defeat. And that, namely, is sin and death. Our king is much greater and much better. But too often, our eyes aren't lifted that high. May the Lord help us. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, there are so many obstacles and challenges that each person, each family in this room faces, that this church faces. Some of them are superficial and some of them are very hard. Some of them are very heartbreaking. And oh Lord, I pray for those who need comfort this morning, you would comfort them with your incredible grace and power. For those who are facing sin that they need freedom from and forgiveness for, may they turn to you because you are so gracious, even to those who have neglected you or even rejected you at times. And for those who are anxious and fearful about hardships that they're facing and they don't know where to go, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help them to lift their eyes to you in faith. And I pray that you would particularly help this church together to more and more love Christ and think great thoughts and have great expectations as to what he can do in his people and for his people. I pray that the cross would be something that helps us to see that there is nothing you cannot do, O Lord. I pray you would richly provide for this church, provide them with unity, provide them with joy in the face of all circumstances, and provide them with a rich intimacy with Christ together, I pray in his name. Amen.